0: Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your
1: fingertips. Kevin, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I came across you by way of our mutual friend, John Natola, who happens to be uh, sort of a maverick educator. And when (laughs) you told me about what you were up to, I was immediately intrigued because uh, I'm very interested in changing education, talking about what's wrong with it, and talking about how you can fix it. So on that note, can you tell us a, a bit about yourself, your story, your journey, your background, and how that has brought you to everything that you're up to in the world today?
3: Yeah, yeah, great, thanks. Um, so I've been I've been teaching in the teaching career for almost 20 years, and uh, pr- primarily I've been teaching English, literature, writing, and some history as well, so mostly in the humanities. And so, uh, up about, about five years ago, I, I really started getting into. Well, I've always been interested in technology, but about five years ago, I, I started really getting, getting serious about the role technology is playing in education and really transforming my classroom and and working really hard to to try to keep my classroom up to up to the pace of change that uh, technology has made in the rest of the world. And I think that's kind of what you know brought us together. I've really worked to become a, a leader in, in moving education forward and uh, meeting the demands of what, well, we're now really deep into the 21st century. Um, and, uh, and, and so, you know, part of, part of what I, what's, what's driving a lot of this is my research in, uh, in technology and particularly in, in some of the things that Google is doing and applying some of the insights that, that Google has learned through, uh, running their business and, and, creating innovators in within their culture and trying to apply some of those insights into the classroom.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And, uh, you know, one, one of the things that, that happened was I got the opportunity to spend a, a couple of days on a Google campus in London because I had uh, been I applied for this, this program called the Google teacher Academy and, uh, really got to experience what that culture was all about and, uh, trying to, so, so I walked away from that really thinking all right these guys have learning figured out because really that's what a Google campus is it's it's its own educational institution everyone on Google they're 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 these lifelong learners right uh, but they're also incredibly innovative and creative and that's really what I wanted to add to to my classroom and really really I believe that we need we need to add into education in general so I While I was there, um, I was also reading this book called Drive by Daniel Pink. Um, Daniel Pink is is the author of another book called A Whole New Mind and uh, To Sell as Human. Really, really interesting stuff. He's an amazing author. And one of the things he writes about is is these companies like 3M and Google who offer their employees – a certain amount of time and all of the the company's resources to pursue these projects that are independent and not necessarily endorsed by management. And when I, I, I'd already heard about this in Google, they're called 20% projects or 20% time. And I'd heard about those for a while. And I thought that, that, that that was, you know, another perk similar to getting your dry cleaning done and having massages on campus. But the more research that I did, I, I realized that, that they offered their employees this kind of autonomy, not, not as a perk, but as a part of their business plan. Um, and, and so what, what they found through their research and through their experience is that they by, – by offering their employees autonomous projects – That they can get more innovation out of these people, more creativity. They can solve really difficult problems when they have a culture that embraces autonomy. And so the the more I learned about that, I thought, well, all right, if this works for businesses, why don't we try it in the classroom? And so four years ago, I came into my classroom of 10th grade students and I said, all right, kids, we're going to do this thing called 20% 20 projects. We eventually call it, call it 20 time. And I told my students that you're going to take on a project that you come up with on your own that has a, a real purpose and a real audience. And you, I'm going to give you 20% of your time in my class and the entire year to pursue this project. And I was so excited about this. I thought my my students would just like jump up and down that they would have this, this kind of opportunity to work on something that they were personally interested in. And the truth was, uh, most of my students weren't too into this idea. Uh, by, the, by the time students become 10th graders they or, or come into the high school, um, there's this expectation of what a classroom should be and what it, what the role of a teacher is in a classroom. and And that traditional role is... Hey, you tell us what to do we 'll do it we 'll get the grade and we 'll get out of here um, whereas there was there was ten percent of my students who who when presented this idea, just just ran with it, they knew exactly what they wanted to do and just went got to work and and produced these amazing things and those were my Montessori kids so they they 'd grown up with with this notion, but it was more of a challenge to get these these other kids to. Take on some some independent project and and stay motivated on it. So it's been a it's been a four year challenge of of designing this project, um, and and getting these students to realize that there's great value in becoming in in inventing solutions to problems out there, these real world solutions, um, getting it more of an entrepreneurial spirit in a classroom, you know, the in a classroom that's traditionally set up much more like, uh, not not an incubator for entrepreneurs, but um, an assembly line factory built out of the Industrial Revolution.
1: Wow. Okay, so... so- ton of different things here that I want to dig into. Uh, Like you said, you've heard the show. So I I want to actually talk about the journey before all of this. Sure. And talk about sort of the formative experiences of of growing up and, you know, your own schooling that have led you down this path and led you into the world of education.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Well, here's my story of my schooling. I hated it. I, I just, I hated school. I was one of those kids who was staring at that slow-moving second hand, waiting for three o'clock to roll around because I had to get out of there. Um, I, I and I had the opportunity. I actually went to some pretty good schools in my childhood. It wasn't that I, you know, went to these terrible schools, but it just it just it wasn't for me. I couldn't wait to get get out of those schools. Um, and uh, you know, really, what the, the the kind of things that I got excited about. Well, was was the, the moment my parents brought home this amazing machine called an Apple IIe. and uh, it was it. I, I, t- I got to, I got to take a computer class, and I, I learned how to program in BASIC. And with with this machine, I could create endless things. You know, I I, I stayed up until very very late in the early in the morning designing these computer games and this was the first time in my life i felt like i was absolutely in the zone of of some intellectual pursuit and uh, it was kind of the first moment that i felt like uh i had academic ability that that otherwise definitely wasn't recognized in my classroom um so so you know, throughout throughout high school, I was just kind of in and out of, of school. Um I, I went to college at a small liberal arts school in Virginia called Lynchburg College. And uh and, and there's when I really started to understand the, the value of writing and started getting very, very interested in the process of writing. Um and so I, so I studied English and really, really got into, in, into that field. And that's when I uh, started teaching writing in English as well. Uh, following that, I, I, start, so I, I got my graduate degree in English education and then went on to my first teaching gig. I started my career in, in the Rocky Mountains in Crested Butte, Colorado, because I also wanted to be a ski bum. But I also wanted – so I wanted to be a ski bum, but I also wanted to build up my resume. So I I was teaching at this this ski academy, and we were skiing in the mornings and teaching in the afternoons. And then the dot-com boom came around, and I was living in Colorado, but my friend in the Bay Area said, you've got to get out here. The world is changing, and I got offered a job to be a – an editor for a, an online auction, uh, online auction company for their website, and so I saw this kind of fast-moving train. I decided to get on board, so I moved out to to San Francisco and really got a sense of um, Silicon Valley and all the changes that were going on in, in that world. Um, the the dot com bubble bursted, and I. Uh, felt compelled to get get back into teaching and so so then I did and and that brought me eventually to Monterey, where I'm teaching right now at this just amazing school, uh, York school in monterey. and uh, the great thing about this school is that when is that they really teach or they treat their their teachers like the professionals they are. and when they see something when when these teachers here see something that they can do that really could help their students. Um, the administration not only gets out of the way but supports it, and uh, and so that's that's what really made this this project that I took on possible, and uh, and it's it's really the the kind of work that my students uh, have done through this this twenty time project has, has been really extraordinary. Um, it, not only in, in teaching them the entrepreneurial skills that I think that they need to become really valuable members of society, but but also that they're out there serving their community. And, and sometimes that's through con- community service. So we have uh, students who are supporting the libraries by putting on these large events. Um, the, uh, other students are, are going to uh, nursing homes and training uh, senior citizens how to use Facebook. So you take this typically isolated population and through uh, some careful design of curriculum and, and workshops, these these students go to these nursing homes and, and show uh, senior citizens how they can reconnect with their families. Um, some some amazing projects. So some of them are, look very much like like these really compelling service projects. Um, but other students uh, want to take on businesses and, and start a business, and and I fully support that because uh, I. I First of all, I just believe in capitalism, but also the fact that I know that if you start a business and you don't end up serving your audience, you're out of business pretty quickly. And they, they learned that really quickly, that, that all all uh, service and business is about service and giving back to, to their community.
1: So a lot of different questions about this. Um, <laughs> one of the things that's really interesting to me is that you hated school and somehow you ended up in education. That's a a pretty drastic shift in identity and and a way of seeing things. And I guess what I am interested in is how we start to make those kinds of shifts in our own lives. Uh, And I mean, that that's, you know, from one end of the spectrum to the other. And I'm just really interested in how something like that happens.
3: Right. Right. Well, I, I never when I when I was in school, hating school, I, it never occurred to me that I would uh you know, try to solve that problem by becoming a teacher. But as I got through graduate school, I saw that that this position was going to be a possibility that you know, my skill as my 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 growing skill as a writer um could could be could make could could, could become a career if I became a teacher. And when I was offered a position where I could teach and also follow this other passion of, of snowboarding, um, I took it. Now, once I took it, it became really important to me that I create the kind of classroom environment that I would have wanted to be in when I was a kid. and um, And so I you know I looked at I looked at my experience in Silicon Valley. And I looked at how what it was, what that environment was like, and it was one where uh, where, where creativity and, and producing things was more important than compliance. Whereas that was that was the uh, atmosphere I'd, I'd experienced in school. So I, I wanted to create more learning environments and experiences where my students were were building things. And you know, going back to, to my schooling, there were a couple notable exceptions to that miserable experience. One of them was was uh, it was called industrial arts, but it was basically a wood shop class. Um, and there we were building things, things that had a real purpose. Um, and and that felt like a really valuable experience to me. And Look, I still use those skills that I learned all the time. Um, the other class that I took was called video writing, which was a video production course. Again, another, another course where I was building things or creating things for an authentic audience rather than just to either please my teachers or please my parents. But I was out there the, – the work that I was doing was, was, was for other real people. That was a big difference for me. That, 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 that creates purpose. And you know, one of the insights that that Dan Pink has in his book Drive and that really has transformed my career and, and pretty much everything I do is that um, it, it's all about motivation. Like how do you motivate somebody to be truly innovative? Um, and and when I was thinking of motivation as, as a teacher, you know, I think about how do I motivate my students to succeed and the when we're thinking about academic pursuits that are algorithmic so what i mean by algorithmic is really when i when i'm looking for my students to understand how to solve a problem that that we adults have already figured out how to solve then it's really just a matter of teaching them to solve this this algorithm, this, follow this path that we know how to get there. So if you want to figure out you know, the hypotenuse of a triangle, well, you, you follow uh, Pythagoras' algorithm, a squared t- plus b squared equals c squared. Or you want to figure out the force of an object, well, you follow Newton's algorithm, um, force equals mass times acceleration. Or if you want to figure out which there to use in a sentence, well, that's just an algorithm, right? The there, there, or there. Unfortunately, that's an algorithm many of my uh, my uh the people online don't have to figure out. But um so when we when we want to motivate students to solve those kinds of problems, we've got a really cool and simple motivating tool to make that happen. And, and that's bribes. We, we basically bribe our students to, to learn these skills in the forms of, of uh, grades, right? So they're these extrinsic motivators, these carrots and sticks that we use to get our students to do the work of learning. But when we want our students to solve problems that we don't know the solutions to, which is exactly the kind of problems I want my students to solve, are those, those bigger problems, then the, the research uh, bears out over and over again that when you offer someone an extrinsic reward to solve a problem that requires true creativity or true innovation, that th- those extrinsic motivators not only fail to motivate somebody, they actually undermines one's ability to be creative. So you know there's there is this baseline of extrinsic motivators we all need you know we need a we need a salary that we can we can support ourselves and our family with, but anything on top of that, any any sort of extrinsic motivator on top of you know just getting the basics, um, those actually those do not help when we're really looking to get innovation out of people whether that be employees or students, and so we've got to we've got to find some other motivating factor. And what Dan Pink determined is, is that there's three factors. There's that, that companies like Google and, and 3M um, offer in their culture that, that allows for that kind of – motivate uh, that it motivates that kind of innovation. And those three factors are autonomy, which I've already talked about. Um, another one is mastery. And, and what that means is if you can demonstrate – to your students that they are getting better at the work that they're doing, that they're becoming masters, be, be it slowly or, or in a very gradual way, but show growth and, and really demonstrate that, that they, they do have a growth mindset and that they are, um, they are building that brain, which, you know, as, as I, you, you mentioned in one of your earlier episodes, Carol Dweck's uh, mindset, um, this just amazing book that every, every teacher should read. Um, if, if we can show students that their brains are growing, that becomes, becomes intrinsically motivating. And then, then the third factor, so autonomy and mastery are the first two. The third one is, is purpose. If we can show students that the work that they're doing has a, has a greater purpose outside, outside of the teacher, of course, outside of the classroom, outside of the parents, and even outside of the self – that the pur- that the purpose of their learning not only helps themselves but but helps others outside of their their themselves. Then that's when that's when the creativity and the and the innovation really uh, kicks in, 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 into, into space.
1: So, as an educator, then why is it you think that as a society we have had such an emphasis on compliance? Uh, you know, following <laughs> rules fitting in and just churning people out through this system, which I personally happen to feel is a one-size-fits-all solution. And as I told you before, he recorded one that failed me pretty
3: dramatically. Right, right, right. Well, it's it, – I mean the thing is it's, it's based on the, – the whole education system is is based on this industrial model. Um, and, uh, and, and education itself, it's, it's one that is quite reluctant – to change and insulated from the forces that require change in a lot of ways. Um, The thing is we, we teachers, we tend to teach using the model that we know best and that's the schooling that we got. Right. And so there's, there's this kind of resistance to, to change. There's, uh, we, we tend to think that educational institutions should be these kind of insulated areas. And so you know, you get teachers and parents and even students. They, they adopt a level of, of conservatism with education. Part part of that is because the stakes are so high, right? We're we're educating. We're we're, we're talking about educating students, which, which everyone agrees. I don't care who you are, is really really important. And to change that is is risky, and you're you're actually risking a student's education to, 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 to change something. Whereas in business, you know, everything, it's all about taking risks. And, and there, there are going to be, there's obviously going to be lots of failures in, in the business world where we don't have that kind of tolerance in, uh, in education. I think that's part of it.
1: Okay. So how do you overcome the reluctance, the resistance and, you know, Develop this tolerance for these things because I mean I happen to think that if I had had a a higher capacity for these things I would have learned a lot of valuable lessons much earlier on in life Uh, if you had
3: a higher capacity for For, what uh,
1: you know tolerating failure tolerating risk all of these things that you know You've basically said there's a lot of resistance and reluctance to embrace within the education system
3: right right well you know the the whole notion of of uh, the importance of failure has has almost become cliche, right because I mean because in the business world, everybody gets it that you you need to take risks and you need to be okay with failure. you know it's, it's the, the the very best story is Steve Jobs getting fired from his own company and uh, you know which which may be one of the the greatest the greatest failures of all time, which created the greatest company, right? uh that, and, and that 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 failure is the cause of that but that message has not uh has has not getting through to education and and that's because we cuz in in school there's there's so much emphasis placed on these this testing environment and that's how we evaluate our students through tests and if they fail a test that is undoubtedly a bad thing, right because that score follows them forever. And, and so we do train our students to really uh, to, to fear failure, which causes them to be more conservative in their ideas and really uh, it, it, it lends itself to a culture of all right, well here's here's the rules. I need to figure out what my teacher wants. So that this teacher will give me a good grade, so that I, you know, can can go to Berkeley.
2: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance, United Healthcare Tri Term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh onecom
3: So, um, yeah,
1: go ahead. Why do you think it is that certain students manage to overcome the limitations of that system, despite what their external circumstances, grades, whatever it might be, indicate, and others don't?
3: Uh, because they don't give a shit. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> um, at some point they don't, they don't care. I mean, if you look at a lot of the most innovative people out there, they, they weren't they weren't all like great students. You know, there's this kind of the notion of the, the B minus C plus CEO, right? They're, they're, they're ones who have resisted the notion that I have to comply and follow the rules of this teacher. You know, this, this thing doesn't make sense to me. I'm going to go about it a different way and I don't care, you know? So I, I think it's, it's kind of the rebels out there. You had to be a kind of a, a, a rebel to, to uh, to start something like a like a business like Apple, right?
1: Let me ask you this, and then we'll shift gears a little bit. Uh, you know, one of the things that's interesting to me is is looking at molding moments or sort of latent talents, and I'm interested in hearing from your perspective as a teacher if you've been able to recognize and see those moments when a student hits flow and there's potential for something greater inside of them.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, this has become. You know, real, real critical passion of mine, and something that I've started to dedicate. I mean, I've dedicated the past few years to this notion of getting entrepreneurship in, in the classroom. And one of the things that I notice is that this this project that where I allowed my students to, to take on something that you know didn't necessarily even meet my curricular goals, but I hope they did in some way. Um, but when when some of my students get curious about computer programming in particular. Um, I I have realized that it's really important to get out of their way and let them run with it. Here's the thing the the, our world has has this huge demand for computer programmers. And, you know, that demand is, is really the limiting factor in, in the the growth of, of the great things that's that's happening out of Silicon Valley. The one breaking point is that there's just aren't enough computer programmers out there. And, what, what is really sad to me is that there are so many potential uh, engineering geniuses out there that the only reason that they don't fulfill that potential is that they have no exposure to programming. And and particularly with with girls and minorities, they they're the ones who have the least exposure to it, but the most to gain from those kinds of opportunities that are available to them. And so, you know, I have seen by just by the virtue of offering them the the time and the resources to pursue some project that that doesn't necessarily fit within the the normal curriculum of, of, a, of a school, particularly computer programming, which I can't believe is not a requirement that is that that, that is at the same level of chemistry and Shakespeare. I just, I, I, I don't believe it. I can't believe it. It's as, important, as important as chemistry and Shakespeare are, computer programming is more important, I think. I know that's uh, that's blasphemy, but... Especially coming from an English teacher. It, it, absolutely. And, and I think Shakespeare's really freaking important. But, um, you know, here, here's the reality. You know, the way, the way schools look like, if you were to look at a school, if you're an alien and coming down to most high schools, you would think that our goal as teachers is to prepare college professors. Mm-hmm. But... There's not that big demand out there in the real world for college professors. Now, of course, we need to provide a a liberal arts education and students need to get an exposure to a wide variety of, you know, the the sciences and the humanities, of course. But but knowing how to write a literary analysis is not the most important thing real world people need to have. Right. Um, it's much more important to be able to write, um, a, a compelling persuasive argument, but it doesn't have to be about literature, which it seems like is really, really important if you looked at our schools.
1: Oh yeah. I can tell you this as somebody who is about to have a book with a publisher, I couldn't analyze literature to save my life. It was one of
3: the things <laughs> I right, was exactly. most horrible at. And you've made story. it, right?
1: Uh, yeah. So uh, let me ask you this. One of the things that's really interesting to me is that you kind of divided these groups of students into the, the people who are Montessori-educated who, embrace, who embraced this 20% time idea and those who resisted it. What I'm interested in is how you start to break that conditioning in your students uh, right. and get them to overcome that.
3: Right, right. Yeah, I mean the tragedy is, you know, I think I think it was uh, Ken Robinson who who revealed that if you if you ask a group of kindergartners if they're creative, every one of them is going to raise their hands, and then you ask a group of sixth graders if they're creative, maybe half of them will, and then you ask high schoolers, you know, two out of Thirty will raise their hands, and 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 he argues, and I think quite correctly, is that we beat this creativity out of out of them um, through through education. So, how do we reach those students who have had that kind of that that uh, that spark schooled out of them? And you know, my initial answer was, okay, well, let's find passion and let's let them pursue their passion. But what I discovered is. That doesn't work because not only do these kids not feel creative, but they also don't feel passion for 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 the creative process or, or, or for much of anything for that matter. There's way too many of these students out here. You ask them the question, what are you passionate about? They don't have an answer. And so trying to get students to work on their passion just wasn't working for me. And so what I found was instead of focusing really on passion was to to provide for them a purpose. So I I had them go out and and really observe the world around them through a new lens, really asking them to seek out problems or opportunities that they saw where they could impact the lives of, uh, you know, affect the the lives of, of others out there. And uh, even so, so sometimes that works, sometimes that dis- didn't work, and they find some opportunity to create a project that would help help these other people. But sometimes that, that just that didn't appear. So for for example, you know, I, I went to this one student. I asked I asked her what uh, what was the last time she felt like she did anything where she really did help somebody, and and that's when she talked about the time when she taught her grandmother Facebook, and she really. Changed the life life of this woman, and that's when we uh, said, "All right, well, let's scale that experience and and go out go out into uh, into local nursing homes and let's teach them Facebook. Let's get them connected with with their families and loved ones. And as soon as these students who worked in that project who were not excited at all about the twenty percent project, but as soon as they saw the the effect that they were having, the real world effect that they were having on a real audience, suddenly they became passionate about, uh, uh, about what they were doing and they started to understand and they started to get, see themselves more as creative beings. And so, you know, one of the requirements that I have, I, it is it is an open-ended where they can choose whatever project that they want, but I have these benchmarks that I want them to meet and uh, in order to keep them accountable and moving forward, and the, the biggest benchmark is the one at the end of the year I ask them to present to the community their work in, in the form of a TED-style conference. And, you know, th- these students who who worked on this project, who were very excited about it, they were also really uh unhappy with my requirement to, to require public speaking. Um, I had a, a, an unrelated project where every student had to deliver a speech in front of the entire school. and Some of these students, a so the small number of the students, were so, were so resistant to that, to, to public speaking, that, that, that not only resistant, but it, but it was actually they had a, a, what, what I would say is a medical condition that prevented them from being able to do that. But when I asked them to speak in front of the community about this project, I got no resistance and that I believe is because they saw that there was great purpose in the story that they had to, te- that they had to tell and, uh, and, and therefore they did it. It wasn't easy but they, they overcame that challenge because they saw the purpose.
1: Wow, a lot of stuff to think about. So let's do this. Let's shift gears a little bit. And let's start talking about sort of implementation of a lot of what you're talking about into our adult lives. And where I want to actually start is somewhere that is of personal interest to me. A lot of people who listen to this show, as strange as it sounds, have used the content from Unmistakable Creative to homeschool their kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, which oh, that's great. I, I love would it. have never expected in a million years. But <laughs> – right. uh, especially because we've had bank robbers and drug dealers as our guests. <laughs> but but what course. I'm interested in hearing from you is, one, your perspectives on the notion of homeschooling, two, designing education for kids. And then I want to talk about designing education and continuing this quest for lifelong learning uh, as you know, in our adult lives.
3: Right. Right. So, okay, so first, uh, homeschooling. Well, I've got an 18-month-old. And I got to tell you, I'm pretty tempted uh, to take that on be- because of what I, what I see uh, – well, what I saw in my schooling and then what I see in a lot of the schools around here. Um, luckily, I, I, I'm quite familiar with of, of some, some pretty amazing schools uh, in my community. And so I, I, I feel comfortable sending my, my little boy to, to these schools. Um, but I don't, I don't think schooling – you know one of my criticisms of school is is the, uh, the uh, one of my many i guess is is the amount of homework that that's given um, there's there's just very very little research that any of this homework is is productive in learning and, and there's plenty of research that says it isn't and uh, w- what i would like to see is you know is let's turn down the amount of busy work that students have when they when they go home and and let's dedicate that time for students and parents to work together on, you know, these bigger projects. You know, I, w- I would love th- that, that parents instill in their students uh, th- this creative aspect that they're constantly learning and constantly building, but that they're pursuing kind of these these disciplines or these opportunities that aren't available in the school. So, I, I definitely plan to be a homeschool parent. Even though I also plan to send my sk- my kids to school, um, I may fight the amount of homework that my student brings home if it's consistent with what I've seen in other schools. So, does that answer the first part of that question?
1: Yeah, I would say so.
3: And then, what what was next? Um, uh,
1: designing, uh, you know, education for our children.
3: Yeah. So, I, I, I. I, I the, I, I want to. the The world has has changed so much in the past twenty years, um, but but our schools ha- have not. Um, luckily, we're we're starting to see a, a transformation in in what the what a school looks like, what a classroom looks like. You know, we're getting out of these these just rows of desks that are that are uh, mind numbing, and uh, and and putting more of an emphasis on. Student-centered learning. So there's, there's been this really big push from uh, teacher-centered learning where the teacher directs the instruction and, and much more t- towards student-centered learning where students take ownership of their learning and, uh, and understand that, that the way that they learn is probably much different than the way every other kid in their classroom learns. So it's, it puts the onus upon the student say, hey, you've got to figure out how you learn. We're going to help you get there. Um, but, uh, you need to know that, that, that this learning is, is for you. It's not for, you know, to impress the teacher. So I, I admire that, that, that push from teacher centered learning to student centered learning. Um, even though I still believe that there is a place for teacher centered learning. Um, and, and, and some evidence for that is, look, we, we love teacher centered learning when that teacher's got something pretty, pretty great to tell. We, we love lectures uh, think of how popular the TED conference is and these TED videos. It's they're lectures, right? But they're really compelling. So anyway, I still think that there's a place for that and, and we need we need to give students a basic foundation of a certain amount of knowledge and part of that's gonna be by cramming this information in students' heads. But but we're we're getting we're we're balancing that scale a little bit with having more student directed learning. And that's good. But I think that we can go even further, and that's, that's where we, we add a further – a deeper component from not just student-centered learning to, to what I call audience-centered learning, and that the learning that they're doing is not just for them, like I said earlier, but it's, it's to, to meet the needs of, of their community and, and the globe.
1: Okay, So the last part of this question, uh, was around sort of continuing this lifelong quest of learning as adults and implementing a lot of the things that you have talked about into our own lives as, adults. Yeah. you know, for people listening, getting that spark back, you know, working on whatever our 20% time project would be, I'm uh, really interesting kind of hearing how you would go about implementing this in, in adult life.
3: Yeah, well, I think every adult should have a 20-time project, right? Uh, most of us have, have day jobs where we, we are um, serving the demands of a manager or a CEO, and, and that's fine. I mean, we've got, got to pay the bills. But I hope everybody has some idea or some project that they're working on in the garage, right, and uh, and, and taking some risks and maybe at some point pulling the trigger on that. But I, I know that... The, my whole career has been full of these 20 time projects that, uh, you know, I've been, I've been trying to publish books for my entire adult life and I've got a stack of rejection letters. So my, uh, my 20 my, you know, personal innovation project or my entrepreneurial project has been to try to break into the publishing world. And, uh, and I've finally done it with, with this by, um, I finally uh, I launched a Kickstarter campaign uh, to write a book about 20 time and it was it was successful and and uh, and, and it's published and, and it's out there and it's called the 20th time project. But and, and before that, it was a, a website that was designed to uh, to to help teachers and students get through the those common writing errors that we see so often. And and so that's been a, a website. It's grammar.me, G-R-M-R dot M-E is a, is a site that's out there that, um, that tries to teach grammar in, in a new and, and innovative way. So, you know, I hope that all people should always have that one thing that they're working on again, working on in the garage and, you know, take the risk and, and, and try to make it happen.
1: So, so, let me ask you this: You mentioned the Facebook example. I'm really interested in some more specifics about one how these twenty time projects have you know changed the lives of the other educators that you work with, the students that you work with, uh, and the communities that you've been a part of. Like, what kinds of things have shown up that you never had could have planned or prepared for?
3: Yeah, good. Um, well, let's. I'll talk about one student, and these are some of the challenges. One of my students who, who uh, has, has gone public in, in the in her anxiety. She she suffers anxiety, in, in when she's in front of other people, but one haven that she has found that helps her anxiety and help her cope with with the world is YouTube, and uh, she really found that that she loved producing YouTube videos, and so for her twenty percent project, she started a YouTube channel, and this channel was uh, is is for people who are interested in learning new uh, recipes or learning new ways to um, uh, style their hair for, for, for girls and and young women. And, uh, and so she started this channel and now she's got a ton of subscribers and she's got way more confidence in, in her, you know, the way she holds herself. And, and I just, I'm just crazy about this, this great success that she has, been able to overcome this great challenge, but through the process of serving others. So that's, that's Grace's YouTube channel, which I don't know if there's some way to link to it. Cause I would love for other people to subscribe to her channel. Um, let's see. So, so some of the, the other projects, um, an, another group uh, started a, an Instagram page uh, called cook that. And it was a, a series of, of recipes uh, to uh, th- so what they would do is use Instagram as their platform for uh, for delivering their recipes. And now that they're now, and they've got quite quite a big following, and and now they're talking with, um, they're in in talk with uh, a a uh, Courtney Allison, who's uh, a publisher of a, the book called Soup Club. And now they're they're working together and and looking to expand this this notion of of getting people to cook more often um and and uh and share their food with others. Pretty pretty cool cool movement. Wow. Um one kid wanted to start a business. He wanted to start a a web design business. He he knew how to build websites and he would you know look at local businesses in the area and see their websites just were awful. And so what he would do is uh without any permission, he would just Redo their website for them, and then present it to them and see if they wanted to buy it. And so this this kid was was uh, he's you know a capitalist. He really wanted to to make a business that that had uh, a lot of growth to it. And within I don't know a couple months of me telling him that he could do whatever he wanted once a week in my class, his business became profitable.
1: Wow, yeah, pretty pretty cool stuff. So. One sort of final question about this uh, whole idea of education, what do you think are the implications of everything that you're talking about for college and university
2: mm.
3: well i i I, th- I think we can see see the same thing happening at the university level um, getting getting students uh at the, at the university level building things creating things. And, and, and luckily there are lots of programs at the university level. There's a little more of that kind of flexibility and, and uh, tolerance for those kinds of real world app, uh, applied projects. Um, you know, I, I got to go to Stanford University's the, the D school where this whole design thinking process um, where they, they developed this, this design thinking process with the company IDEO and uh, very exciting to see how they are creating a, a, a method of designing these solutions to real world problems and really getting that down to a science rather than it just being, you know, somebody – accidentally comes up with a really great solution to a problem, they've they've designed the actual method of how to create an effective solution to a problem. That can that can apply to anything. It can apply to a, a physical product that, that needs to be made or it could be a to a an application or to a work of art.
1: Wow. Well, Kevin, this has been really, really insightful and uh, thought-provoking as I expected it would be, uh, especially because you're an educator and I have such a personal interest in, in seeing and, and you know changing what is going on in education. Uh, so I'm going to close with my final question, which you have heard me ask a thousand times uh, since you've <laughs> listened to the show. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
3: So what I, what I really think it, it, it takes is, is courage, um, the, the ability to, to take a risk. And to, to jump in, uh, it, sometimes that takes the courage to break a mold, to uh, do something that other people are going to think is crazy, uh, but to, to do it anyway. And uh, in, in education, in particular, you know, it's it's really it takes a lot of courage to to do something different. But I think I think to be unmistakable and to be creative you you've got to have that courage to do it and, and maybe you don't feel like you have it, but you know, there's this, the, the saying, uh, that the give it a try. So, you know, in star Wars, when, when Yoda tells Luke Skywalker who's whining about how he can't use the force and, and Luke says, I'll give it a try. And, and, and Yoda says, there is no try, uh, there's do or not to, um, there is no try. I, I think Yoda's wrong when we're talking within the context of entrepreneurialism and innovation. I think give it a try or try is the perfect world word because it implies the possibility of failure. And you've got to admit to yourself that there is a possibility of failure and that's okay. That's, those are the things that we try. We try things that we're not certain about. And that's when, 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 you, when you do that, when you take on things that you're not sure about that might end up failing miserably. I think that's when you become unmistakable. Hmm.
1: Well, I think that makes a, a perfect way to wrap up our conversation. Uh, Kevin, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your journey and your insights with our listeners at The Unmistakable Creative.
3: You bet. My pleasure, Jimmy.
1: Yeah. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. If you like what you heard, the greatest compliment you could give us is to share the show with a friend and let people know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Unmistakable Creative.